Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. Welcome to the House of Strauss. I am overjoyed to be joined by one Kyle Bodie, founder of Driveline. I would, you know what? I'm just going to dub you something right now out the gate. The King of Improvement. Oh Does that sound like a good title right there? Does that sound okay? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Okay, well, there you go. Um, Let's do it. Baseball fans probably know quite a bit about you. Uh, for those who are not uh, into baseball and are not well-versed in it, uh, you've been a pioneer at improving, at using a database approach uh, to not just uncover players as happened in Moneyball, but to actually take them and through a range of really smart and novel approaches, uh, get pitchers throwing faster, get hitters hitting better. And so people make these sojourns out to Washington to visit you. Um, and you also had an executive role with the Reds. And you are you, you are somebody where, as I continue to fluff you up before the conversation, but it is true. I, I was listening to you on these podcasts and you're just very thoughtful uh, with many, just many things that you say, even though they apply to baseball. I, I would encourage people to stick around you if you have any interest in sports, business, or just life, because it all applies. So that's the whole, the rigmarole of an intro, and how are you doing? Uh, that's a great intro. <laughs> I'm doing great. It's, it's uh, been a really busy summer, so looking forward to, like, it's kind of cyclical. So when the World Series is going on, we're uh, the slowest. Although now that we get into other sports, it's... Uh, I don't think there is going to be a slow season anymore. <laughs> so who knows? <laughs> what other sports are you getting into? What's the what's on the well, agenda? Yeah, yeah. Well, this year we, um, after I left the Reds, I, you know, it was a big push for us to go into all four major American sports to so get contracts with teams, um, and I led that kind of push. And um, for whatever reason, the MVP machine, that book that was written, a lot of it's about us. That had very little effect in baseball, but in the other sports. Uh, I think like, I don't know, it was crazy. Like a ton of GMs read it, you know, the sports and I yeah. think they saw how behind they were. So that led to a lot of interviews and questions. I was still with the Reds at the time. Um, but then when I got out and I connected with all those guys and then we ended up uh, closing a deal with, um, an NBA an NFL and an NHL team, uh, all this year. So wow. we have, uh, contracts in all four sports and, uh, trying to go through more. Actually, NBA is our biggest target to be quite honest with you. Wow. I mean, that, the NBA to me intuitively seems the most difficult to find these aspects to improve in uh, versus I look at something like golf and that to me seems like something that is very driveline-esque um, where the factors are a little more stable and it's easier to quantify. Um, there was something you said on a podcast that I just found so interesting. Uh, your, your life had been changed by reading Moneyball. And it opened your eyes to some things. But you made this comment, I hadn't really thought about it, that Billy Bean, whose career is premised on, hey, there are these market inefficiencies out there. There are these players that people don't know to look for, who have these skills people don't know are valuable, didn't subscribe to the idea that such skills could be cultivated or improved. And 
it, it's a very strange thing. So it doesn't surprise me that you have these GMs and other sports reaching out to you because I do think that's the conventional wisdom in sports. There's this sense of, hey, you've got talent and guys can kind of work on what they have, but you can't really improve. Tiger doesn't change his stripes. Uh, what do you make of this being so novel to people, the idea of radical improvement? I've thought about it a lot, honestly. I came up today in one of our sports science meetings, <clears throat> and you're 100% right about golf. To go back to that, I mean, that's the original improving. I mean, it's, it's you versus the world. Golf, you know, it's a mental game. You know, it's a physical game. And um, watch some like Bernard Lang is like going out there on the senior tour, dominating, right? And he's out there talking about how he uses a biomechanics lab at however old he is, 60 something. I don't know. He's, he's constantly using sports science to get better. It's unbelievable. It's such a cool thing to watch. And then people have their swing coaches in golf, right? Tiger has this guy, Bryce DeChambeau has this guy and so forth, you know? So it's like, I think it's been well-established track man flight scope have been used in golf forever. Right. Um, and so now it's, it's about how do we port that to the other sports? And I don't, I don't know why yeah. it's taken so long, but it, it has. And, um, yeah, baseball is, I guess, the first to adopt it. And uh, now the other dominoes are falling. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a good explanation for why people wouldn't think that there are these aspects to improve. And it's a very fatalistic uh, way to go about things. And my intuition has always been, well, there are probably all sorts of pockets that, that you can improve on. And this is very free associative right now, but I was checking out I was checking out the the AlphaGo movie that you tweeted about and encouraged people to watch about uh, an AI uh, system playing the game of Go versus the greatest Go player in the world. And the end result of the movie, to spoil it to a certain extent, is that the AI reveals to the humans a different way to play the game. And it's human beings and AI working in concert, but there are just so many things like that out there where there's a different possibility. There's just a different way to do things. And sports just seems very mimetic where we're copying each other in order to learn how to do it. I mean, here's one example in my head is, um, do you know what the Euro step is? I'd assume so, but you know, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You can be too into basketball, but (laughs) I suppose I don't know a ton, but yeah, yeah, it's okay. So, for those who aren't basketball fans, uh, the Euro step, you, you have two steps when you pick up your dribble. Uh, you're afforded two steps. And the way I grew up as an American, you pick up your dribble and you go one, two, forward. That's the most intuitive way to do it. You're going forward. You go one, two, and then you make your layup. Well, Manu Ginobili comes along from Argentina. And there have been a few players before him, but he was really the first to popularize it. And what does he do? He zigzags with those two steps. He goes wide one way and pushes off in the opposite direction, befuddling defenses. Now, there's just nothing in the rule book against it. And if you were an AI who is mapping out the best moves, I'm sure you would stumble upon that. But that's so simple. I mean, that's just, I feel like there are tons of things like that out there. There are probably tons of things uh, that are the new Euro step just out there waiting to be plumbed. And it's strange to me that there are people in sports who don't have the perspective that those things exist. That's an interesting way to put it and, and to connect it to AlphaGo, you know, to not spoil it for others either. <laughs> um, so much of like AlphaGo and AlphaZero and chess 
they are just told the rules of the game, but then they're not trained. I think AlphaGo actually was trained on games, but then in, yeah, it was because they used two networks, but then in um, AlphaZero for chess, they just told it the legal moves and that's it. They didn't train it with any openings. They didn't play like the Queen's Gambit Decline. They didn't mm-hmm. play like the top 10 most common openings. They just said, move the pieces, however, and do kind of self-generative learning. And then it turns out that humans are pretty good. You know, for 200 years, we've been playing a bunch of openings. And as you probably know, I play competitive chess also. Yep. Um, and it, it plays effectively the same openings that are played at the GM at the, at the world championship level. The, you know, humans are pretty good at intuiting what is good. However, there's pockets of moves that have considered been considered no good, even with engines, because AlphaZero wasn't the first engine. Chess has been solved long before AlphaZero came out. You know, so this new neural net approach exposed a whole different set of how, you know, we could play chess. Uh, and it's really only a pocket of a couple moves, but it really did change chess forever because before the engines, you had, um, you know, the Kasparovs, Fisher, Bobby, and, and all those guys. And then you have kind of the engine generation. And then that's starting to be like Vichy Anand to Magnus Carlsen, you know, the current or former world champion. Um, and now there's a new group of kids that are using neural net engines and their moves are different. So one of Magnus's recent losses in classical, which he never loses, um, was to a younger kid who was using, you know, alpha zero type principles to prepare his openings. And so I think that's a really interesting way to think about sports, right? When we throw a baseball, when we shoot a basketball, when we fight defenders off, we do so based on how players have done it for decades, centuries. But are these necessarily the best ways to do it? Or are there, you know, self-generative ideas that if we used unsupervised learning, we could find other ideas? And then that's how certain pitches in baseball were developed, actually. It's the sweeper. And that's um, different types of gyroscopic pitches using seam-shifted wake and things like that. Are They come out of true labs that were self-generated, uh, not based on data from games, which is actually really, really interesting. And so we know that that's a valid way to go to attack baseball, but we're also pretty sure that that's not the only sport, right? That can benefit from the second approach. Yeah. I mean, you were tweeting about something that blew my mind. I like baseball, but I'm not, I'm not incredibly well versed in it. And it was, um, it was a stat on the uh, pitching great, the young pitching great for the Braves, Spencer Strider, how of his pitches, 98 miles an hour and above that were right down the middle of the plate, right down the heart of the plate, uh, there had only been to this point in the season, I think this was a late August tweet, there had only been two hits, both singles. I don't know how many total pitches, but it was a very long video. So there are a lot of a lot of total pitches of 98 miles an hour going right down the heart of the plate. And you were tweeting about this and I was just thinking about it and thinking about the implications of this more or less breaks my sense of what you're supposed to do and what the sport even is. Uh, you're, you're, it's this, you're supposed to have control and throw it on the black. And I mean, if you, if the the smart thing to do is basically just get your velo up and throw it in many instances right down the heart of the plate, then I don't know what to think. That's not that's not how we were geared to think about it. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot more nuance to it. But that's just one example right there where you're talking about things and thinking about things that totally reshuffle my sense of how a sport should be thought about. 
Yeah, I mean, no, you're right. I mean, is there much more nuance to it? Uh, that's, that's the argument. Is that have, have, is baseball truly solved? Is it truly a brutal art? Um, and currently, yeah, it is in a lot of ways. I mean, hitters need to adjust, right? It's always a game of adjustment. Um, and they will over time. But currently, there is a dominant strategy. And that's being exploited by the very best, right? And then when you see the pitcher who has a dominant arsenal, right, one of the best in the game, and they have some of the best command in the game, then that's what Jacob DeGrom is, who's un- unbelievable, right? He takes all the human characteristics of what we believe about baseball as command and throwing it to the black and having the brutal art of the best pitches in baseball. And then when he's healthy and pitching, you see just how brutal this game can be. Yeah. You know, um, and Otani is almost that way too when he's healthy too. You know, it's a shame that both are hurt. Um, so it's, it can be like that, but then golf is no different. Right? We're talking about like, can golf really be just hitting the ball as far as possible? It's like, unfortunately, it explains a huge percentage of winning, right? Um, and then putting is turning out to be random. You know, it's like, those are hard things for people to, to grasp, but unfortunately are true, you know? Yeah. Well, how do you feel about that on an emotional level that, there is a bit of an incentive structure in a sport and an interplay that maybe people are comfortable with and is best aesthetically. I think I, I heard you on a podcast talking about how, yeah, Manfred is right to be worried that the best strategy for hitters is just watch a bunch of pitches whiz by because pitchers don't have the command that we think that they do. Uh, how do you feel about adding to the brutality and perhaps making these sports less enjoyable because you're solving them? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real thing, you know, but the at the end of the day, we get paid by the professional athlete to make the professional athlete better. I mean, that's 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 the end of the story, you know, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to make the players better. And if that leads to a less watchable product, that's on the league to adjust. You know, mm. um, I agree, though, as a fan going home, you know, like. I'm, I'm, not saying, less money, I'm not saying know? you should feel guilty about it. By the way. I just want to dispense no. with that. You yeah, shouldn't no, no, feel no. guilty, which is how do you feel about the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, but the the premise is 100 percent true. You know, like what is best for a team and a player may not be the most entertaining thing. And then what is the interplay between what's best for Jacob Degrom, what's best for the Rangers, versus what's best for Major League Baseball? They should be aligned, and 99 percent of the time they are. Right, but when they grow apart, how do we deal with that? And what do the labor relations look like that? And we see this in basketball too, right? Yeah. There's infinite amounts. Three is greater than two. We figured it out. Okay, you know, great. Um, and we're seeing that. And that's very different. Hockey has changed dramatically. The slap shot is nearly extinct in so many versions of the game. The game is incredibly fast. If you can't skate fast, you can't play the game anymore, which has not always been true. Mm. Right. So it's very interesting how we change and what is actually enjoyable about the sport and how much is it on fans to adapt. And I don't think there's really good answers to it. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, it has to be entertaining, has to engage fans. Um, and we have to make it in a way that like grows the game, right? And baseball is in that spot. So is the NBA, and uh, the only sport that's not doing this is the NFL. Everyone else is fighting for that, you know, that market share. And um, I think it's very tough with the new generation of kids watching sports. How do we adapt to that? And baseball is uniquely difficult. So the pitch clock is a good good example of that. And are there others yeah. coming? I mean, you bet there are for sure. There are. Yeah, I mean, I can just relate to wanting to break the game, though. I mean, maybe I don't want the result of it, but. Who doesn't want to? I, I was always that kid who was looking for the glitch in the video game. That's what was intellectually satisfying. And my friends would get very angry if I happened to find it in Madden or whatever. I'm not comparing 
me then to what you're doing uh, with just all the resources and and brilliance of it all. But I think there's something to that 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 inclination and that urge to just try to see can I can I figure it out? Can I can I get to the uh, can I get to the end of the uh, the Truman Show sound sound stage or whatever that you know I I can certainly that's a chase that's a hunt that I can relate to. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing, you know. And if you really think about it, like go to the roots of it about player development. I'm a huge fan of video game speedrunning, also. So like I love watching it. So it's actually a really close parallel. <laughs> but if you think about it, it's like why. It, the root of it to me is like, but this isn't destined for the Nolan Ryans, the guys that were born with like the greatest ability ever. Not saying that Nolan mm. didn't work hard, one of the hardest workers, right? But now we can, there are players who sign for $20,000, that sign for $5, that sign for nothing, that are found in NBA Europe, that are found in independent baseball, that are found on rugby pitches, that are found playing handball, and they can, we can convert them to, you know, sports and develop them and then give them a chance. And if they break the game or they make it less watchable, it's just not. It's not a compelling argument to me. It's like so many more different diverse types of players can Mm. now play these sports because we know more how to train them. And I think that is awesome because now it's not just were you born with the greatest genetics? Obviously, that plays a huge role, possibly the largest role. There's no doubt about it. But can like merely slightly gifted players play at the highest level? And the answer is starting to become yes. And instead of just by random chance, we are now figuring out how to do that. And I think that is a really beautiful story is told right and i yeah. hope that we can do that over the next 10 years in all the sports i think you've made that compelling argument with uh when you were at the reds uh more getting more undrafted guys into the fold improving them it's this interesting as much as it's about increasing the brutality of the sport there is also this democratization where people can improve themselves it's like Rudy was a pretty good movie. That's a pretty good story. But what if Rudy had driveline? What if he could get a few more, few more plays and maybe go up a level? And so that seems to be happening as well. I mean, what what are we talking about in terms of improvement? What's the most a guy has ever added to his velo as a pitcher, for instance, um, under your training? Oh, I mean, he didn't train with us, but Spencer Strider is a good example of that. He was a good pitcher at Clemson but nowhere close to where he is today, you know? Um, but Carson Spires, who just debuted last week, you know, uh, early September for the Reds, is a great example of that. We signed him for $20,000. He was a closer at Clemson also. Uh, he was okay, but, you know, definitely non-drafted. Um, we ended up getting him, and he went from sitting at 89 miles an hour to touching 97, you know, plus wow. with five pitches instead of three. And all three pitches were not good in college. And now he has two above average major league weapons and three average to slightly below average ones. I mean, that's crazy. Trying to change in two and a half years, you know, um, one year where we didn't even have games was COVID, you know, and his father texted me when he made debut and he was at the game and I was so proud. I tried to fly to Cincinnati to see it. Uh, And he's just like, you know, like two and a half years ago, we were on a zoom call talking about how Carson can get better, you know, Mm -hmm. and now I'm watching him pitch in the big leagues, you know, in a playoff team. And um, that's a great human story. There's no question about it. I think everyone listening can appreciate that human story. What I would like the organizations, but the organizations aren't in the business of good stories. They're in the business of winning games. But what they don't seem to understand is that for every Carson Spires that makes it, that's millions of dollars of surplus value that, that they're leaving on the table because they don't want to 
focus on players, non-drafted players. They want to focus on the prospects. Well, we gave this guy $4 million. He deserves mm-hmm. more time. Like That's something fundamentally, I'm going to say it, something fundamentally un-American about that attitude. There's something, and I really do believe that. I say that word intentionally. I, th- I believe it's very un-American, very non-democratic. Like it's very, the, the American dream is to do what Spires did. You know, that is mm-hmm. what the dream is. And to not give them the same amount of attention, if not more attention, we are doing something wrong. You know, and I, I really very strongly believe that. Well, some of these teams, in my experience, they're less an outpost of America and they're more more like um, an old European castle. I mean, sports is a funny business where these are often family-run institutions, uh, quite inefficient, a lot of really smart, hard-driving people, but they're maybe not working according to a typical org structure. Uh, do you see... Do you see the loss of value and the inability to train the employees as related to maybe a failure of management that might be specific to that industry? I'm leading the witness a little bit in that question. Yeah, a little, but you couldn't have said it better with an aristocracy, you know, like a European Mm -hmm. family owned business. I had a conversation with a general manager of the baseball team. Well, I guess mention who it is, but you know, some time ago, a couple of years ago. Uh, and he was like, you know, this is still run like a family run business yeah. <laughs> as much as it is a billion dollar industry. Yeah. We still have ownership that like, you know, if we try to remove this person or do these things or trade these people, like, no, nah, no, nah, we like that guy. You know, we don't, he, he's a good golfer. We don't, we don't want to get rid of him. It's like, mm. dude, well, that, that's what matters, but it does. You know, and at the end of the day, they're the owner. So what can you do? You know, it's, it's how it works. So there is a big more than fans would believe that plays a huge role in in uh, in what teams are willing to actually do and, and improve. And that's really unfortunate, but that's also that's also their right. You know what I right? Well, it's their right, but it seems like there's the most flab in the organization in this whole improvement. Because it seems like you've pointed out, again, these are things that I felt like I should have intuitive or thought more about, but there, there aren't benchmarks. There aren't benchmarks. And so... A lot of these organizations, some are really smart and some are well organized, but a lot of them, they just kind of hire coaches and the coaches just kind of work with the players and whatever happens kind of happens and nobody really knows what's supposed to happen. And it's pretty astounding. It's still like this at, at this uh, at this stage, because you would think that it would be more stratified with billions of dollars at stake and so many eyeballs on it. Yeah, there's just not, I mean, it's, it is whatever happens, happens. We get the players, they go out there, they do whatever. There's, they don't, most organizations don't hold their coaches to any sort of standard. What is the standard? What is that? What does that mean? Yeah, we've a lot of, a lot of ink has been spilled about the heat culture, which I think is changing basketball quite a bit, whether you believe in it or not, you know, and whether you like Spolstra or not, he's certainly a polarizing character, but Spolstra and what comes out of Pat Riley and what comes out of that organization, the stories are very uniform. They're not different. People hate them and people like them, but the same thing is said over and over. Like they're demanding these things. You have to show up to cracks. You have to shave. You have to do these things. And maybe you think that's stupid and maybe you don't. But at the end of the day, you're not hearing conflicting stuff coming out as what the Heat do. And no. I think that's pretty important. Whereas there's other organizations in, in NBA and not just sports and business where you hear, well, this guy was told this guy, and you hear conflicting information and the Mets organization's dysfunction 
right? So with the Rays, Tampa Bay, the pitchers they have, you can guess who they're going to have. The Mariners draft the same types of pitchers. If you're a Mariners pitcher, or if you're a pitcher and you want to be drafted by the Mariners, you better throw a lot of strikes. That's what they care. They care about. They care about low walk rates, and they care about throwing strikes. If you don't do it, they're not interested. Now, maybe they're leaving value on the table, no doubt, but at least they have an organizational direction that's dogmatic, that everyone can get behind. This is what we care about. This is what we're going to do. This is what it means to be a Mariner. This is what it means to be successful in our eyes. And if that strategy doesn't work at the major league level, okay, then everyone needs to be fired, but not the players. Like the players were told a specific strategy to go at it. Whereas in most organizations, they're very scared to do that because they know that they don't know the answer. They know that if they say we should do this and they're wrong, that they're going to get fired. Whereas instead, you can just blame the players. But this isn't going to work for very long. There's organizations like the Colorado Rockies that have like no direction, and they're just going to lose 100 games a year for a long time you know, because they don't have any clue what's going on. Where you have teams like the Dodgers and the Rays that have a very defined structure and how they do things um, with varying types of payrolls. And it's not surprising that they have the success they do. And that's a real issue with Major League Baseball that the league office is going to have to figure out how to solve. We can talk about payroll disparities all we want, and they are important in Major League Baseball. However, when you have front offices and ownership groups that are not willing to evolve and not willing to be competitive because it's a personal issue with them, like they don't want to go to school, like they don't want to admit they were wrong, and they'd rather lose than be right. That's a real issue. I don't know how you deal with this. Like, the new fans deserve that um, mm. for years on it. And I, I think the answer is no, but. Uh, but I'm not sure how you force an organization to change either. Yeah. And something I like that you've said about this, uh, because people might think, well, here comes the sabermetrician stack guy in to coldly sweep everybody out of the organization, replace them, you know, with robots, whatever. But you, you made this point that a lot of these employees in these organizations, once given a direction, can really surprise you. And if you actually give them a goal to shoot for and give them a way to improve, they can really contribute value and uh, feel valued. And in a directionless organization, and I've been around a couple and covering the NBA, it's a really it's a depressing it's a depressing environment because just nobody nobody's getting better. Yeah, nobody's getting better, and nobody's being held accountable. You know, that's the frustrating thing you know I, I once talked to a player was with the astros when i worked there and i talked to him recently but we had been together 10 years ago and i said what were some of the dumb things that you did with the astros because we did a lot of dumb things you know and he's like no i can't think of any and i'm like come on man like nothing mm -hmm. stupid i said this hitting approach that we had that we did i saw i'm like i watched it screw up a hitter good player and probably others too and he's like yeah of course he's like i would agree with that that guy got worse he's like but what we were doing before that he's like how many players got to the big leagues because of those changes he's like i'm one of them there's a bunch of others he's like so it's not like what came before he's like you have to compare it to the base rate not some ideal thing so and i think that's always important to remember yeah you've got me thinking about heat culture too right now because andre gadala uh is somebody i got to know a little bit in his time with the warriors and he's a really smart cynical guy He's not one to gush about anything. And what was so surprising to me is that he, after playing with the Heat, after having won championships with the Warriors, said that he wants to take Heat culture and apply it somewhere because he became a convert. He was cynical going in, dismissive. And I think to what you're saying, I don't know if the Heat do anything 
statistically entirely novel, but a lot of what they do to what you're talking about is accountability. And maybe it sounds corny, but there's a lack of accountability in sports, maybe because you're trying to, I don't know, get value out of people or making millions of dollars. But something about Pat Riley having the cachet to say, no, you're weighing yourself every week. You have to hit these standards. You have to hit these benchmarks. Somebody like Iguodala comes in and goes, this is, I mean, this is the secret right here. There's no doubt. I mean, and whatever they do and, you know, whatever corny or whatever it is, at the end of the day, they have a ton of non-drafted free agents that played on the championship caliber roster. So that alone tells you they're either extremely lucky, which I guess is possible, or there might be something to it or both. Right. And, um, yeah, I think it's very interesting. I've talked to a couple assistant coaches in the NBA, fortunate to know a few, um, and they all, express some skepticism but they say man i wish i could coach like that like we can't coach like that like it's just we can't talk to the players like that we can't, can't hold them to standards we can't do these things because it's such a player driven league and you have a someone like pat riley who has nothing to prove both as a player and as a coach you know to just say like no we are going to do that and then you have someone in spolster who worked his way up through the video yeah. to say like it doesn't matter if i get fired like this is how we're going to do things and that's how change is affected across the entire sport not just with one organization it takes a couple of unreasonable people to be willing to do what no one else was willing to do um and that was the original story of moneyball that's the story of driveline baseball and that could be the story of the heat i don't i don't know it well enough but i mean that could could be a catalyst for the nba for sure yeah i'm definitely going to pitch tom haverstrow who uh, covered the keep for many years on uh, just giving us the secret of heat culture, because now in my conversation with you, if it intrigues you, it, it intrigues me further, and I would like to get uh, some behind the scenes. Um, is there anything similar to you can throw down the middle as long as you have velo that would maybe surprise me about hitting? Because you've also worked on developing hitting. Is there any? W- are there any conventional wisdom misnomers about what constitutes? good hitting in a modern baseball environment yeah um it's it might be worse actually <laughs> it's like there's three three major factors for being successful as a baseball hitter um it's how fast you swing the bat bat speed uh smash factors the second one which is stolen straight from golf anyone who knows golf knows that which is the quality of collision like your driver head speed versus the ball speed it's a ratio and you know, there's, it's well known that balls are in golf are manufactured to a certain standard and same thing with the clubs, whatever. So it's like, can you maximize your swing speed with impact? Like, are you impacting as efficiently as possible? There's a known maximum threshold in golf. So like how close can you get to that 100%, right? And so baseball, there's the same factor. It's the exact same idea. Uh, and then there's swing decisions, which you don't have in golf. The, the T is stationary. No, no problem. But in golf, you know, in baseball, we have to make a decision. Are we going to swing at bad pitches? Are we going to swing at good pitches? And what are good and bad? But let's just start with, like, do we swing at strikes and take balls? That's a good start, right? Uh, if you asked, polled 100 dads online and asked them uh, that played up to ninth grade baseball, and you asked them, rank these in the order that they're most important, they will all put, 80% will put swing decisions as number one. Mm. Like, you can't swing at shitty pitches. Then the number two thing they'll say is smash factor, and then bat speed will be lowest, which of course is exactly wrong. It's the mm. exact opposite, which is funny because when I hired the director of hitting here, who's now the director of hitting with the Red Sox, uh, with the I was did not believe that I believed exactly what I said the other way, like mm. you can't you can't strike out and whatever. And he was like, he didn't have any data, but he was like, I, I don't think that's true. I think bat speed is the most important. I said, but bat speed is not useful if you strike out a lot. And he's like, yeah, 
well, let me have these arguments. So I was on the other side of it. You know, fast forward five to seven years later, we now know that bat speed comprises anywhere between 55 and 75% of the value of a hitter. And this mm. is heretical. If you tweet it, and I have, you get every coach, every little league coach, every big leaguer in the world telling you that you're full of shit, you know? And that's exactly how I felt. But the data doesn't lie. So it is what it is, right? The reality is, is that swinging the bat extremely fast is the most important thing. Now, if you're Giancarlo Stanton, which they'll point to, oh, Stanton has the best bat speed in baseball, and he sucks. It's like, and he has the worst swing decisions. It's like, all right, you really need to think about this again. Giancarlo mm-hmm. Stanton has the highest bat speed in baseball. I agree. The data agrees. He has the worst swing decisions in baseball. Pretty close, if not the worst, right? Yeah. Isn't he still a big leaguer? Didn't someone pay him $200 million? Yeah. <laughs> like, so what are we talking about? Like, he's only in the big leagues because his, his bat speed is so high. Let me give you an example of someone with extremely poor bat speed and good swing decisions. They're all in AAA and in AA. And the ones that are in mm-hmm. the big leagues are people like Nick Madrigal, who has like below average bat speed, below, below average bat speed, very good contact skills. And he comes off the bench, but he's been traded because there just isn't enough bat speed to cover velocity, to hit with authority. And the game is based around power hitting, just like the NFL is based around arm strength and running speed. And just like the NBA is based around shooting threes and the NHL is based around being extremely fast. Like a, this is just the natural end of of how sports are with the human athletic achievements that we can that we can do so that is uh probably even more heretical than throwing it down the middle i would guess <laughs> yeah i'm also just checking stanton's stats and career and yes maybe yeah he's struggling these days but maybe a guy who's hit 59 home runs in a season uh has all these uh seasons of a really good ops yeah maybe not the best example for that particular argument uh, I would say, um, I'm just fascinated by the whole thing, man. You know, so much more than I do. I know so little about it. I find myself sometimes going on YouTube and trying to see those helmet cam views of just what is a pitcher seeing? I mean, I mean, what is a hitter scene? I should say, what is a hitter scene? Like what, what, what even tricks you? Because you see the result of it from a fan perspective, from that batter's eye located camera, but that's not what it is. I mean, I remember reading, I think it was in David Epstein's The Sports Gene that basically you swing and, uh, you know, and the ball is kind of two thirds of a way there. And it's a get it's guesswork. You can't see the rest of the third. That might not be how it is or an oversimplification. I don't I don't know. But there's this from the outsider's perspective, there's this inherent mystery to what should be basic physics and all all quite easy to grok. I think that's ultimately what is frustrating to the average fan or to people that want it to be this mysterious thing is the rules of physics, the laws of physics are what they are, you know, and uh, throwing the ball fast, you know, and then to go back to the, the big three and hitting, if you sold someone like, okay, what if someone had the third best bat speed in baseball and was the above average smash factor, like pretty good collision efficiency and was below average in swing decisions. It's like, guess who that is. Like, guess what this, their, their uh, slash line would be. And like they've had 550 at best or something like that. And I would guess. And they just be like, well, that's 2022 show him. So it's like, that's it's, his swing decisions are good. Yeah. You know, like, so if it matters that much, he won the MVP and he might this year too. 
Yeah. You know, so it's like, I don't know what to tell you, like, <laughs> other than, or this 2021 shit. Sorry. I've seen him hit what look like yeah. pop ups because he got under it and it goes over right. the center field fence. <laughs> yeah. Your mistakes. So the amount, the percentage of balls that you square up in baseball that you actually hit, like, on time and you're perfect are somewhere between six and six and 10%. Six and 10% of the balls that you collide with that put in play, one mm-hmm. in 10 at best, are pured, which means 90% were mishit which means you better make do like some of those have to go for hits and some of them have to be productive. So what is the best way to make sure that some of them are productive? You can increase your smash factor, your collision efficiency. Sure. But we know that the upper threshold of squaring up balls is not, not above 20%, not in a single season. Right. So if that's the case, then that's hitting 200 if the rest are outs. So then the balls that aren't squared up, the best chance that they can be pop-ups that go for homers or doubles that head off the fence or hard ground balls that get to the hole is, unfortunately, bat speed. Right? That's the best way to improve your, your miss-hit balls to, to survive in the big leagues. Okay, so this is this a crazy way to think? And I apologize if some of these questions are dumb because baseball is a sport where you have very intelligent people talking about all sorts of arcane uh, subject material that I am not necessarily privy to, but is it possible that you could create a 400 hitter, but such a hitter, if you had that kind of talent is just going to get his talents distributed in these other ways, because it's smarter to just optimize for, for hitting for power. You know, I think that's an interesting, really interesting. I don't think that's a dumb question. I think it's a really interesting question. You know, we have, the closest to someone hitting 400 was Luis Arias this year, you know, and he was hitting 400 for a long time. But then, of course, then he's hitting like 360. Yeah. Um, I, I would, it would be really hard to hit 400 under the current rules. You'd have to get like inordinately lucky. The pitching has gotten just so much better than back in the day. You know, that's the issue. Um, I, you know, people like Tony Gwynn are one in a, uh, more than one in a generation. You know, it's, it's crazy to see that type of talent. And maybe Arias has some fraction of it, but the pitching today is so, so difficult. Um, and the pitching is difficult because the hitters are so much better today than they used to be, which is also something people don't talk about. It's like there's everyone in every lineup can hit home runs if, you know, you make a mistake, which makes it really hard to take pitches off, which makes it really hard to throw pitchers that you don't care about. Um, yeah, people, you know, say hitters have an all or nothing approach and that they're not adjusting, but that's not true. The hitters are, are, are getting so much better every single year. Uh, and the young kids are getting so much better. The Ronald Acuna's, you know, the Jason Dominguez is on New York. You know, these, these players are incredible. Um, and we're going to see, I think the end result is that when the younger players are cycling into the game, we're going to see a very power based game, but like how those talents are distributed isn't always based on homers and things like that. I think we're going to see a really interesting brand of baseball over the next five to 10 years. And I hope people are patient and stick around for it because I think we're, we're starting to see the early results of what the LA Dela Cruz is and the really young rookies that are really exciting. And, and baseball's pushing them really hard, which I think is, is smart. Well, I, I enjoy uh, some of the home runs as well. I mean, Acuna hits that to dead center field. What was it in Dodger Stadium? Uh, yeah, 121 miles an hour off the bat. I mean, yeah. it's not often I see a guy hit a no doubter uh, to dead center field through the LA Marine layer. Um, and I would just encourage people to uh, to check out that clip. But that itself, I mean, you know, maybe that's maybe I'm just a dumb caveman and I like ball go far, but I like ball go far. You know, I don't think it's so bad. They need to maybe have a little bit more in between, but I I think we can sort of 
underrate um, the sweetness of, uh, of great contact. I, there's still so much I want to know about it all. I mean, here's one to throw at you. Maybe you have no thoughts on this because uh, you didn't work with it, but it, I would watch the A's. Not so much anymore, but I saw Matt Olson come up and they changed his batting stance from something that was standard to something that still today looks really kind of goofy with his arms just hovering out towards the plate. And I never really got an explanation for why they did this, why they took this guy and they gave him, they gave him an unconventional batting stance. They almost, I just don't see other guys have, and it appeared to work dramatically. And now he's this amazing player is one of the best players in baseball. I, as a fan, have no idea what the fuck happened right there. Do you know what the fuck happened right there? In that particular case, no, I don't. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I know a little bit about him just through hitting coaches and whatever. And I, he's just a high ease machine. He's one of those guys that like, wants to know a lot about hitting and, and loves the game. And, and that's kind of trite to say. But I think people would be pretty surprised in how many people that play on the biggest stage don't, don't like it. Uh, you know this obviously through NBA, it's no different in baseball, yeah. but there are people like Olsen and others that, that truly want to get to the bottom of it. And Mookie Betts is another good example of that too. Like they just love the game. They love to learn. Um, and they love to get better and they, they want to figure out the game independent of their success, which is really strange, you know, but like that, that is how they, they fell in love with the game more than, or as much as they fell in love with being good at it, which I think is a two very different things. Mm. Um, and I think that's always really awesome to watch. That's funny because Mookie Betts, a uh, writer friend of mine, once had a conversation with him where he actually said, you know, basketball is my favorite sport. Uh, <laughs> baseball is somewhere, somewhere, somewhere down there. But I mean, that's maybe different from how much work he's actually going to put into it. And he might have been uh, he might have been joking around. I'm not sure about it, but I just think it speaks to again. There's this there's just a lot of mystery out there. Um you can't give any trade secrets away, perhaps, but what areas of basketball do you think you could see a lot of improvement happening that people don't even know what to target with? Yeah, uh, well, I think the biggest thing that some fans know uh, is that Hawkeye, the same player tracking technology that we have in baseball, in Major League Baseball, is coming to NBA this year. Uh, and what that means, um, the NBA had second spectrum could track where the player's center of gravity was. And it was pretty good at, at what it did. Uh, very good. Um, Hawkeye's going to be able to track biomechanics near, in near real time. We've heard that it's going to be sub-second delay, which means that there will be cameras tracking the players, their limb movements, their speeds, their velocities, not just how fast they move, but how fast their arms move and accelerate over with one-second delay, which means the teams that can get their hands around this data and stream it and process it in real time can send it to a coach within 10 to 30 seconds on an iPad that's sitting on the bench. And instead of things like load management based on minutes played, you can say this athlete is fatiguing and is breaking slower to his right. Um, so for example, I think it's pretty well known that Kawhi Leonard prefers going to his right, for sure. Like going to his left, he's less effective. This is known and yeah, I think everyone knows that. Um, so when Kawhi's going to his right, he's, he's very effective. So you have to box him out. Of course, this doesn't, this isn't a one-on-one -on -one game, right? So if you deny him going right, then this opens up holes in the defense and so forth, right? Um, but what if you could find out that like Kawhi was forced to go into his right when he's fatigued by 20%. Mm. And when he plays into the fifth minute 
uh, without being subbed out. He actually isn't any good at these things. So how can we exploit defenders in a way that we're not even thinking about? Like if this person's closeout speed drops by 10%, your three-point three percentage goes, your true shooting percentage goes up by 10%. Well, okay, maybe you can know that, but how do you know if the person's fatigued? But you might know that in real time now with Hawkeye. There are so many things that are possible with real-time biomechanics uh, that driveline is going to solve for the NBA teams. Sure. So we have contracts with at least one team. Um, we were just on site working with them um, at a gym. We set up our motion capture cameras, shot, um, talked to the players. They were all extremely excited. Um, and I think what you know, and I think some fans know, but maybe, maybe not a lot, and I certainly didn't until I got more into the NBA, is just how genuinely interested these players are and how genuinely intelligent they are. And I don't mean intelligent from a, well, he's street smart or basketball smart or whatever. No, like these people are like genuinely very smart about getting their hands around sports science concepts that relate to their job, you know, and you don't have to dumb it down or anything. Like they, they understand these things. So when you explain what seem to you or to me as very complicated concepts, they can grasp it very quickly, yeah. which is really cool. Um, and that's old heads that I talked to. I talked to someone who's 38, a well-loved basketball player in the game. And I talked to rookies and there's universal, not universal, but there's very strong interest from both sides of the age spectrum where they see the game going. Um, and I think that's, that's really, that's really freaking cool, you know, to see that there's been a lot of transfer from, from baseball to that. Cause I thought it would be stuck in the mud, same stuff we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Um, but it turns out that, that I haven't had that, I haven't had that issue at all. And I, my, my free throw shot is fucking busted, dude. Like I can't shoot basketball as I in my life. Um, so it's really, really interesting. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, in basketball, the stakes are so high. You improve, you can go from end of the bench, practically one foot in Europe to potentially making 20, 30, maybe even $40 million as the contracts are going up. I mean, you'd be foolish not to be hungry for any sort of advantage or edge that you can get. And yeah, the players, I think basketball is just so complicated too, strategically. And that's, there's a lot of opacity there um, when it comes to strategy in basketball versus even football. I think with Madden, people have more of a sense of what's going on out there. The lay person probably has a better sense of football strategy than basketball strategy. And it, it can be, you know, it can be quite arcane. And when you talk to these guys, maybe they're not well-versed um, in the great literature. I don't know, but they're going to sound like a nuclear physicist when you're asking about their defensive coverages and what needs to happen. Yeah, basketball is, um, I don't know, it's such a rich sport. I think the NFL is a little, I want to make it sound like this, a little easier to understand. It's a slower-paced game, right? There's the play-by-play -play action. Whereas in basketball, there is no defined event states, right? In baseball, we pitch the ball, we hit the ball, we feel that there's kind yeah. of like clear delineations. In the NFL, you're on defense or on offense, right? There's these things, line of scrimmage, breaks. And the NBA's and the NHL are the same, right? It's so fluid. What is an event state? Are we attacking? Are we defending? Yeah, aren't counterattacks the biggest part of those games? Same in soccer. Yeah. Right. So like, how do we model those sports? And I think it's very different um, how we model basketball and hockey. Those very similar, but how we model them compared to football and baseball, very different. Baseball and football are very similar. Hockey and basketball are similar, but th those two groups are very different. So then how you analyze them from a biomechanics and sports science and motion capture perspective is, is incredibly difficult. Um, so it's, I think it's super interesting. Like one of the things to leave your listeners with and you is like, what is a shot? What is a basketball shot? Like we were doing motion capture a few weeks ago with an NBA team. And it's like, okay, we're going to run our classifiers and whatever. And then how our pipeline works is like we have to set up like, okay, here's the beginning of the shot and the end of the shot. And you start thinking, 
when is the beginning of the shot? When is the end of the shot? Mm. What is a shot attempt? You know, like when does it start? If they pump fake and shoot, do you count the entire thing? Mm. You know, like, or if they pump shoot and pass, do we count it as some sort of shot? And you start to think like, man, these are actually really mm. complicated questions that you take for granted when you just watch the sport. But then when you're trying to classify them, it, like from a data science perspective, it turns out it's not so easy, no. uh, which I think is really neat. No, it's Wittgenstein's language games applied to aspects of the games. And to what you're saying, J.J. Reddick would say it's about getting your feet. Your feet are a huge part of it. So you're waiting for the pass. You want to get your feet ready to load the shot. And so, yes, the shot itself. I mean, when does it <laughs> when does it start? I've literally never thought about that. I've never thought about that until right now. I wonder, you know, I feel like we almost need new terminology for when a sport gets solved and not that these are solved completely, but pitching is solved effectively. If you can get it at a certain velocity and be able to have a certain amount of command. I think that if I'm just spitballing ideas, I wonder if the NFL, if you could just figure out a way to create such a dominant line that nothing else, it doesn't even matter. Almost you could have just totally marginal guys everywhere else. And maybe that's a way to solve NFL defense. I think that's actually a really good place to start because that defines all the movement, right? And I think yeah. the other place is like Patrick Mahomes, right? He's just like a guy, you know, it's trite, but it's like, what if what if you had a top quartile passer and a top quartile rusher and a top top quartile decision maker? Yeah. Well, he exists. That's what that's him, you know? So, like, imagine someone 20% worse than Tom Brady at seeing the field, which is pretty damn good, being 20% worse than him, but 200% better rusher. And, yeah. you know, slightly slightly worse passing or better passing strength and slightly worse decisions that's just the best player in the nfl right so it's interesting how these positions can be transformed and broken down to certain areas and how much can what mahomes do be taught i don't know probably not much right but it doesn't we're not talking about making the next patrick mahomes we're talking about making a backup quarterback a slightly better which makes him a starter and then that could make all the difference in the world for that player and for the organization well, I am fascinated by the upcoming 49ers season because I'm interested in Brock Purdy. From what I can tell with Purdy, he has below average arm strength for an NFL quarterback, but excellent decision making and, and, and accuracy. So quick decisions and accuracy. And I don't know what you need. I I don't know enough about football to tell you what actually matters here because I'll hear some people saying, oh, you got to have that arm strength. If you don't have that killer arm strength in the way that you would need it as a baseball pitcher, look, you're going to be found out uh, in the playoffs. They're going to be able to do this and that to you. But then the other side of it is, no, we're over-indexing that. That doesn't matter as much as the decision-making, the quick-hitting ability with that roster, with that team. I don't know. So I feel like with that team and that guy, I'm almost watching a natural ex experiment and what actually matters and what prevails is the quality that one needs to succeed. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't work with them, so I could just say that, but <laughs> we work with them, another team and it's been amazing to talk to guys like, Oh, we can't consider this quarterback in college because he has below average arm strength. So that's the one thing I guarantee I can fix. I guarantee mm. it. I guarantee, I guarantee I can give this quarterback better arm strength. The other stuff I don't really know a lot about. You know, but if it's like you need to throw an object faster, there isn't a better person on the planet to call than me, you know? <laughs> and uh, I've made that argument to a couple teams and they're just like, oh yeah, that's interesting. They blow it off. It's just like, well, did you, but did you really, what don't you believe? Do you, do you not believe me or do you not believe your own scouting report? Like, which one is it? 
Like, cause you may not, you may say that this quarterback could be a good NFL quarterback if he could just throw the ball 60 miles an hour. But do you really believe that? Because, or do you not believe me? Which one is it? And if you don't believe me, that's okay. I mean, you're, you're wrong, but like, it's fine. <laughs> but you might be wrong. I don't know that increasing a quarterback's arm strength actually makes them better. But like, if they say it does, I, we can help. And I mean, it definitely does. We've, we've, we have, we have players playing in the NFL now that are, you know, using our plyo balls and, and in college. And you can see it on my Twitter and you can see it all over. We don't do a lot of promotion, but you can see the plyo balls at many big division one schools that we work with. And then um, in the NFL teams, there's known quarterbacks that it'll, it'll come out just because you'll see it on the field, right? They wear our pulse. We have a wearable on the elbow that tracks elbow stress and reps and their arm ankle, and they use it for consistency. And there are players wearing it every single day in walkthroughs, you know, and you can see it and it's been in the media and never commented on, which is really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll become, it'll become more clear, you know, that, that these things can be ported over from baseball to, to football pretty seamlessly. Can we talk about that a little bit? I'm so interested. The interesting wrinkle with the plyo balls and the weighted balls to me that wouldn't have been intuitive. It's intuitive to me that throwing a weighted object gets you better at throwing harder. I mean, it's like the the donut on the on the bat, you know, like that sense where I, I might have even just assumed that that makes it feel lighter, but it doesn't get you better at it. Whatever. Uh, digression. But it, it, it makes sense to me that throwing a weighted ball helps you throw faster. But the wrinkle I didn't know until I started researching what you guys do is that it, you got to combine it with throwing it lighter, like a light object too. Can you explain why the, the two work in concert? I can, uh, I can make some guesses. <laughs> I wish I knew exactly <laughs> what was happening. Um, you know, we're not exactly sure why it works, but the overload underload ideas are decades old and nothing I've invented. They've been used and you are used today in uh, javelin, shot put, discus, hammer throwers. Like they've been using it forever. Soviet sports science is really the first to, to discover it uh, and to experiment with these underload overload implements, they called them. Um, and the best guess is that the overload stuff builds arm strength, so to speak. Uh, it's like lifting weights for the arm and then the underload things develop power and arm speed. Um, we don't know if that's true you know um but i think of it what is true for sure in the research is that a blend of these things work better than either one on their own like that's not research that only we've done that's research a lot of people have done um and it probably has to do with neuromuscular coordination and also like different types of muscle fibers being recruited it's very hard to know exactly what's happening in the human body which is the variable stimulus think like anything else like that helps like you being good at some video games makes you better at other video games just because your hand-eye coordination improves you know the neurons that wire together fire together as they say right or maybe it's the other way around i'm not a neuroscientist you know but like these these concepts that you know we're closely related things have the chance to transfer uh what we do call machine learning something i do know a lot about like that transfer learning concept um and this is good and bad right this is why using virtual reality for hitting potentially or virtual reality for quarterbacks might actually be a a problem because virtual Mm -hmm. reality is so close to the real thing, but it actually isn't the exact same thing. And Mm -hmm. so as a result, you're training against the reality that is not exactly representative of what you'll go see. And if that's the case, then you're training against a reality that, that isn't rep, that isn't reflective of the game, which means, you know, your timing will be very different. And people have to understand that like how your vision works is like, nearly unexplainable like how it happened to humans like how we see and what's going on when you see you know as the light comes in your brain like everything is upside down but clearly you don't see it that way clearly it's flipped correctly right but like why right so this is one of many things that like how much processing is going on to actually see what you're seeing 
So then we have these gaze tracking glasses that you wear and it tells, it looks at your pupils and then it looks out. There's two sets of cameras. It, it can tell what you're looking at, when you're looking at it and almost where the focus is, right? And with baseball hitters, you know, you ask them, where are you looking when the pitcher's throwing the ball? And first of all, they don't want to think about that. Mm. But then, you know, then you get wide answers and they're like, okay, tell me where you're looking. And they say it. Okay, now where are these gaze glasses? And probably something like 50% of the time, they're completely wrong. Like they're actually huh. looking somewhere completely different. And it's not that they're lying. That's not the intent. It's that they really do believe what they're saying. And they really do believe that's what's happening. But that's not actually what's happening when you look at it. And some of the best players don't ever look at the ball. They look at the center of mass. They look at the person's head. They don't look at the baseball. So when the parents are like, oh, keep your eye on the ball. But I have video of people that won the MVP. I have people with video that hit 300 in the big leagues where they're looking at the ceiling, you know, where they're that's... looking like at the person's chest. Yeah, it's just, it's completely crazy to start to think about how the brain actually processes all this stuff. So not to get wow. very far afield. No, but this it's, is... it's very hard. Yeah, it's pretty, did... pretty nuts. How do they hit the damn ball, Kyle? That one, I, I don't know. As someone who plays adult league baseball, you know, like, and hits against 70 mile an hour pitching, it's hard enough. <laughs> but like, I don't, I don't know. Cause I stand in, I've seen the nine, like I've developed playing pitchers and stood in there and it's, it seems impossible, but apparently, you know, it's, it's, they are that good. And it's just like an amazing neural net that they develop over decades of practice. Um, so I think one of the end things I want to say about that is just like we have to design practices better so much of practice is wasted from age 8 to 40 like that they're just going through the road things they're not getting any better and worse yet is i think everyone participating knows that they're not getting better mm. right like when you're standing on a field and you're hitting fungos to shortstop and they're throwing it first and it's this time wasting thing or you're making them run laps no one doing it believes that they're getting better not the player not the coach not the athletic director not the sports scientist and not the fan Everyone knows that this is not making the player better. And yet we don't do anything about it. Like that's the thing we owe the players at the end of the day. Like when I got paid by the Reds, you know, a lot of money, like it's just, um, you know, for me it is. And we owe these players, like we owe them, we owe them everything like to make them better because they put their career short, you know, it's anywhere between one and four years if they don't make it to the big leagues, right? My career is long. Like I own drive line. I'll do this for decades, you know? So, if I screw up, it's no skin off my back. I get fired or I quit or whatever. It doesn't matter. You know, like, okay, it's a small speed bump. This person has to go get a job in a field they have no interest in. So when you start thinking of it that way, we owe these players everything. Like you have to give your greatest effort on designing the best practices and making sure that you're giving them the most accurate information you have to make them better. Uh, and then once they see that you're in it with them, they, they care a lot. And Michael Lorenzen said that once to me with the Reds. He's like, I can't be coached by someone who doesn't want it at least as bad as me. Mm. And he's like, and I've seen you in the office until one, two in the morning. He's like, so I know that you want it as bad as me. So we, we can work together. And that was such a great compliment from a big leaguer, you know, that I've never forgotten it. But I've also never forgotten the lesson there too. It's like, how can someone like me prove my worth to a big leaguer? And it's through that, it's through work ethic by showing them that I do care as much as them, at least as much, and if not more. Well, I think that's an excellent lodestar, and you're giving me a lot to think about. The idea that everybody kind of knows that they're not improving and everybody's going through the motions, I think is true. And that's a fascinating insight. And I think if we broaden it out beyond what you're saying about the financial incentives and, and career-wise, I think that's – you hear about how we should do youth sports differently, and usually it's that – 
parents shouldn't over specialize or you shouldn't yell at your kids. And it's all true. But there's this other aspect of maybe we should be better at getting them doing something that improves them because it feels good to improve at things. It opens your eyes. I think that there's been this criticism that our kids don't get good at soccer because we just have them run out there when they're little kids and they just kind of run along the pitch and they, they're not doing what they do in Europe, which is working on drills. And you can say that sounds boring and not as fun as playing, but I do think it feels good to get that sense of I'm getting better at something. And it's, it's so strange considering how popular sports are, Kyle, that there isn't, there are all these people, all these coaches, all these practices, and there's not necessarily this this focus of how to improve. What's one of the biggest growing activities for young kids today? What do they love to do? What do my kids love to do? Video games. They love watching Twitch. Yeah, video games. And they love watching. Right? Yeah. They love watching the streamers. They love playing too. Like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to play Minecraft Dungeons with my youngest kid today. <laughs> but what do they love about Minecraft Dungeons? Hopefully they like spending time with their dad. You know, but that... I love spending time with my son, you know, but I think what he really loves, and I do too, if I'm going to be willing to admit it, is that the leveling up the gear, like customizing the gear, those types of things. We grew up, I grew up in a generation that, you know, that birthed the internet, you know, watching my father worked at NASA, you know, and so he told me very early, he was like, hey, this email thing is going to be really valuable. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like this is what we do. Um, and I never forgot it. He spent an inordinate amount of money, you know, in 1993 on that computer. You know, it's crazy. And those things are, it, you know, changed my life. And I think we have to think about, we complain that these kids play too many video games and it's, the, you know, microwave society and all in the instant gratification. And we can argue whether that's true or not. Let's just assume it is, because I do think there is some validity to those insults. It's still your job as the coach or the parent to design the program that's going to make your kids succeed around those constraints. Like, I don't understand where parents get off and coaches get off on wanting things to be easy. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, well, I used to be able to yell at my kids and that's what was done to me. It's like, yeah, it's very easy to coach kids when you're a dictator. I agree. But like, is it about the kids or is it about the fact that you have to put in some work to coach? Because if it's the second, I don't give a shit. Mm. You know, when I was in, with they working with the Astros, this was pounded into me in 2013, but we're going to meet with every single minor leaguer, like every coach, like our coach and the coordinators, coordinators who make six figures, like, you know, that work their asses off. It's like, we're going to meet with all 150 pitchers every single day. You know, we're going to meet with each one. We're each going to get a 15 to 30 minute session. And I'm like, it's ridiculous. I mean, that's 70 hours yeah. of work. And the coordinator looked at the guy that was complaining and he's like, yeah, it's called a fucking job. <laughs> like that's, that's what we do. Well, well, we didn't do that last year. That's great. It's new management. <laughs> that's, how, that's how we do things. Um, six years later, they win the World Series, right? And, and due to those types of things. Um, I've never forgotten that. It's like, yeah, yeah, it is harder to reach kids today. I absolutely agree with that. Um, I don't even know if that's true. I just happen to agree with it. Mm. So we have to design things around that. We have to level them up, right? We have to show them incremental progress. When you tell a player, if they practice more, they're getting better. What does that mean? They don't believe you. They don't believe you. Like, so at driveline, like we track their velocities, we track their bat speeds, we track their attack angle. Every ball they hit is on a video game simulator called hit tracks. They see exactly how far the ball would have gone in the simulator. You know what's extremely popular in golf with 30 year olds and 40 year olds? Top People golf. that aren't young? Top golf. Top golf. Top tracer 30. I played Top Tracer 30 and I thought I I was like 
this is the greatest thing in the world. You know, I played it. You hit 30 shots for those who don't know. Top Tracer 30, you hit 30 shots. And it gives you 30, like, I think, like 15 drives, 10 approach, 5 short, or something like that. I don't remember. And then it basically guesses your handicap or your index based on those 30 shots that are simulated. And it was like dead on for mine. It's like your strokes gained and your drives are high because I hit the ball far. And my approach shots are neutral because I'm pretty good neutral. And my, and my, or, uh, yeah, my approach shots are fine. And my short game is completely awful. Right. And they're just like, here's exactly what you need to work on. Come back and pay us and pay the driving range money to do this and to keep training. And not only did I see a beautiful business <laughs> being mm-hmm. born there, but I had absolute faith that if I did that, I would get better. Right. I, or I would at least know you know, how to do this. And in chess, we get immediate feedback from engines. Like when I play a chess game, a four-hour chess game, and I analyze with an engine, I know exactly what I did wrong. Why did I do it? Now I have to think, right? I have to go through it. So it's this immediate feedback that builds the deep learning that people want to see in their kids. But that means you have to engage at that level. You have to engage at the instant Mm -hmm. gratification level. And maybe you don't want to, and maybe you shouldn't have to. Okay, these are all true things, I guess. But like, these are just, these sound like to me, complaints that you don't want to work hard which that's un-american like i don't <laughs> care i don't care i don't care that you don't want to, you i don't want to have to learn how video games reward kids to reach them what about that is what about that is is uh like a good thing to mm. say that you don't want to learn how to reach kids you're not a coach though you know um so i could talk for a long time about it but like that's really the underpinning of driveline is how do we engage these kids with technology or anything that they're interested in and how do we get them better? Because we have to, we have to go to them period. Like the coaches in service to the player. It's not the other, other way around. And I think people really get that fucked up in their, in their learning and how to coach kids. Well, I've never heard a man with such a, a thoughtful measured cadence, make me want to uh, run through a brick wall like you are doing right now. I can't wait to get my kid out to the driving range. Now I have no skills of which to speak as far as coaching him, but I, uh, I want to get him doing something right now um, and apply some standards. Um, I guess to close out on Kyle, uh, you were talking about something that it was just, again, one of these things that I, I did not know and might surprise people. Uh, pitchers don't seem to actually really have a great idea of where the ball is going to go when they throw. Is that an oversimplification? No, uh, it's about right. Um, There's a quick story. Bryce Miller from the Mariners, he said, um, you know, he's got good command. Like he throws the ball, he throws strikes, lots of strikes, yeah. really good. Uh, and I'm like, you know, what's the secret to that? You know, like what, what is this? Like how do these? Like, uh, well, Cal Raleigh, the catcher, he's really good. He's like, he sets up, and uh, I throw it as hard as possible, and I just kind of trust that it's gonna kind of be there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> and it's just like they're like, oh, he's being modest, and I'm like, no, that's exactly that's like the greatest answer actually is like to trust the catcher. He puts the glove here. I throw it as hard as possible at that target. And I know my average miss distance is like anywhere between 10 and 13 inches, which is really competitive in the big leagues. Okay, good. You know, maybe he didn't say all that, but that's true. Can you repeat that distance again? Because I want people to really think about that. That's the distance. Uh, If you're, so when Dallas Keuchel won the Cy Young, one of the greatest command pitchers of our era, you know, with minus stuff, you know, in the low nineties, right? Like that's the guy. That's the guy, the command guy that won the Cy Young. His average miss distance on his fastball was roughly anywhere between nine and a half to ten and a half inches, which oh means on any given pitch, on average, he missed by almost a foot. And that's a that's now that's a diameter, not a radius, right? So six inches in any direction, right? Yeah, that's incredible. Like people think that pinpoint command is like somewhere between like three inches, but I can promise you, I've never seen it happen. And with the Reds, we would start our bullpens in the big leagues. You have to throw five fastballs down the middle, and so many big leaguers are like, oh. 
that's bullshit. I'm not doing that. That's college shit. I don't want to do that. And I think we're pitching there to be like, all right, just do it then. Yeah, it's, it's super easy. So if you just do it, do it a couple times and we won't do it ever again. Hmm. And you would, I can count on two hands the entire big week spring training that I watched people throw five out of five pitches right now. It's very hard to do. It's very hard. It's not easy. And then these friendly players, of course, the lesson that's being taught to these players is like, your command's not that good. No one's command is that good. So you have to fundamentally kind of rethink how we pitch, you know? And like that was a really beautiful teaching moment that I got to watch. I mean, it's just one of these things that reorganizes my thought about the sport because I was tricked by that creepy indeterminism because you see a pitcher and he paints it right on the black. And I go, yep, just like he wanted, just like God intended. But it, just because it happened or it happens doesn't mean that it's always so in his control. Um, and Well, Kyle, this has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I, I really appreciate you making the time. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug that you're working on going forward for the audience? Um. Not really. Just struggling baseball if you're trying to become the best baseball player in the world. <laughs> then, or yeah. you're trying to coach kids and make them great. Uh, DrivelineBaseball.com at DrivelineKyle on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I would love to. We have tons of free resources and we'd love to get in touch with anyone that's trying to become the greatest at their sport uh, as we move into other sports. Right now, it's just a baseball site, but soon we'll have, yeah. we'll have some other stuff. I'm wondering if you have programs for five-year-olds right now. I'm getting all kinds of ideas after this conversation. I'm feeling a oh okay oh well, maybe I'm yeah we be... do it's, it's based around <laughs> gamification all the same stuff we talked about it's not about getting them thrown 100 it's about how do we enjoy the game how do we design games for them how do we keep them engaged and that's how we that's how we coach kids under 12 years old well, it's a lot of fun that's that's the best way to do it because that's the first thing i think um to not prattle on too much about my own life i think my son is pretty athletic but you know he doesn't necessarily care which i think is pretty normal for a five-year-old um, so anything getting him having fun with it sounds great to me. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much. Uh, this has been great. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This is great.